Hey there, it's your rule lord Pete. Just two quick things before we get the show started. First, I apologize if the quality of this recording isn't up to my usual snuff. I tried using a different tool and there were some issues. I don't think it makes the episode unlistenable, I just want to acknowledge it ahead of time. Finding a good alternative to Zencaster is a ongoing struggle, but we'll get there eventually. Secondly, this episode was recorded well before PaizoCon, where it was announced that the Drow will no longer be a part of Galarian lore. They are being completely retconned out, being replaced with Serpent Folk as the big bads of the Darklands. Will they re-emerge as something else or simply be renamed cavern elves for the purposes of continuity doesn't look like it but we'll have to see what comes out of the remaster drow have already been used in a couple of pathfinder 2e adventure paths they're in the bestiary as we discuss later but just like how disney decided all of past star wars is no longer canon paizo can do the same thing with their world I already know that there are a couple of third-party publishers who intend to keep Drow alive in some form, they just won't be officially canon anymore. The part where we discuss Drow is still really interesting, but I just wanted to have that acknowledged as well so that you don't come at me after the episode. So with that out of the way, here we go. Welcome to Rise of the Rule Lords Unchained. It's me, your dirty and messy prostitute, Pete. And today I am joined by a couple of very special guests to answer the question, does Pathfinder a feminism? We're going to find out with a couple of awesome people. As many of you know who follow my Twitter, I'm a big fan of the show, The Slovenly Trolls, and I am very glad that both of them are here today. So first introducing is both co-creator and host of the Slovenly Trolls and Cave Trolls podcast, Sharday. Welcome, Sharday. Hello. Thank you for having me. Also a writer of things and Elf Stan. Elf Stan. That is correct. Yes. <laughs> and then also co-creator and best your host of Slovenly Trolls, <laughs> as well as European representative of the Cave Trolls podcast. She's better than all of us. She lives in Finland. Lissa, welcome. Hi, it's me, the better host. Yeah. Okay. Rude. Slander. Wait. (laughs) (laughs) I am so excited that both of you are here for those of us who are unfortunately not listening to your show. What's the quick and dirty version of the Slovenly Trolls and by extension, the Cave Trolls podcast? That's a tricky one. The Slovenly Trolls podcast is a feminist look on some of the problematic issues of D&D, Dungeons & Dragons, where we try to look at different topics on each episode and kind of give it the benefit of the doubt, give it some context, source our, what am I trying to say here? (laughs) 
Cite our sources. Cite our, cite our sources. Give it research. Give it an academic sort of, yeah, give our opinions on it and try to make D&D a better place for those of us who are feminine and who want just want a more feminist and equal take on Dungeons and Dragons. And I personally love that. I've enjoyed your show thoroughly, both because I'm a big TTRPG fan and I didn't know a lot of the context behind many of the subjects that you cover. So it's really interesting to me to see more in-depth look at the sometimes problematic history of some of these concepts, both in real life and then what Gary Gygax and thus TSR and then Wizards of the Coast ended up doing with all of them. So I definitely recommend you as a listener, go check out the Slovenly Trolls podcast. And I've invited both of you here today to do do the same thing with Pathfinder. And we all know that Pathfinder is a clone of D&D 3.5. They wanted to keep that edition going and thus brought over a lot of the same things as D&D 3.5. And though they made some changes with the lore, they still wanted to also keep the general vibe of these monsters so that D&D players could come into Pathfinder and essentially play the same game as they were with 3.5 when 4th edition was going on and no one really liked that. So <laughs> to help me with the background and the lore of Pathfinder as we go over these topics is a returning guest, Victoria Vic Sullivan, a freelance artist, writer, and game designer, both a co-owner and designer for Eldritch Osiris Games and co-creator of the Visit Galarian podcast. Welcome back, Vic. Hey, it's nice to be back. I'm so happy that you are back because you are so much better at this topic <laughs> than I am. I, I've loved your new podcast that's come up with Gloria of New Thassalon. Really interesting stuff. And then, of course, your shows on Deadly D8 have been awesome at helping me understand lore because I am terrible at reading these books that I spend so much money on. So being able to digest it through your materials has been fantastic. And that's super valid. And that's the whole reason the podcast and the videos exist because these books are are dense and that's kind of what you can expect if you dig into any of my stuff is trying to give another medium for a really complicated at times topic so yeah if if you're interested in lore i would recommend checking it out we're on a hiatus on the podcast right now because life but it will come back and there's some good stuff yeah. on there right now if you want to check it out really well produced and short, so really easy to digest as well. With all of you having been introduced, we're going to jump into it. These are all topics that the Slovenly Trolls have discussed on your podcast in much more depth. So any of these, you can go onto their podcast and you can find all episodes covering the entire lifespan of these creatures from... D&D, do you guys call it first edition before advanced D&D? We call it, I think it's called OD&D. OD&D. Is the official term, oh. original Dungeons and Dragons, OD&D. Okay, so the, the whole lifespan from OD&D up to its current iteration with Dungeons and Dragons. Fifth edition, we'll see what happens with any of them when D&D 1 comes out. Now, the one thing I will caveat with 
our discussion with Pathfinder is that Pathfinder is currently in the midst of a remaster. Mm -hmm. What we have, though, are the materials that we can go off of. Pathfinder 1st Edition, the published stuff for Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Now, while we can anticipate that some changes are going to be made based off of things that have been discussed in the podcasts or released materials they've talked about so far, we can't know for sure what is happening, so we can't judge it on that. But I'm really hopeful that they're going to make a lot of changes because they are trying to divorce themselves entirely from the open game license. And some of these concepts, creatures, probably have roots in that OGL stuff. So Pathfinder has a chance to have a a clean slate. And if there are ways that things can change, be improved, I'd love for us to talk about that too. But we have to go off of the materials that we have right now. So without further ado, one of the first creatures that we're going to go over is the Drow. Now, players of Pathfinder 2nd Edition know that there isn't a whole lot about Drow right now, except for in the bestiary, but there is a whole lot about them in D&D. So tell us a little bit about the backstory of Drow. Oh, man. Do you want me to take this one, Lissa, since I'm the whore for lore? (laughs) Our podcast is... Over time, developed into us having a little bit of two roles. There's Charday, the whore for lore, who does <laughs> most of looking at the lore. And also because she's a dungeon master, and I am not yet, uh, she kind of takes a look at the lore and its bigger picture and sort of what is in the mechanics and the game itself. And I am the context queen. So I sort of do the real world context and kind of give it the benefit of the doubt and look at some big big academic essays and read big fat books about (laughs) theories and about satanic feminism and stuff like that. Part of why I love your podcast, so I don't have to do any of that. Exactly. We we do all the research (laughs) for you. We do it all for you. So if you ever want, if you ever have like a homework assignment and you just want to write it on the drow or banshees or what have you, we've got you. We've got all the history of it and then also the D&D stuff for it. We set our sources. So if you want to question or if you want to read up yourself, we can just be, well, look, here's where I got this information and this is where you can read more about it. So, yeah, exactly. So the the lore. So you want the in lore. This is what drow are in Dungeons and Dragons. specifically. Just just a quick recap. And again, you have a full episode. We do. With a whole lot. Yes. So I just want the the tantalizing part. So people go and they listen to that full episode because it's really interesting tldr so the drow are a player character race but they did start out as an npc race in early editions but they developed into a player race created by gary gygax and they live in this realm in usually the forgotten realms but also other campaign settings in dungeons and dragons in this place called the underdark which is underground they have sensitivities to sunlight and all of that and and they are pretty notorious for being one, a, and I'm using air quotes here, matriarchy. We have opinions on if they actually are. At two, they are an evil race, overarchingly. And throughout a lot of DD history, the quote, only good drow was a dead one until Drizzt came along, which is a very famous Forgotten Realms character who was the only good drow for a very long time, who happened to be a man, which again, 
we have opinions about. <laughs> and also they are known to worship the goddess known as Lulth, the Spider Queen. And she is kind of their overarching matriarch. And Drow in D&D, you've probably seen pictures of them. They, in early editions, unfortunately, kind of have a very over-exaggerated pitch black skin tone. So it was pretty easy to draw the racial connotations of Drow. But they've since developed into more purpley tones, white hair, and they are a sub-race of elves and they have this entire little subculture that the further you dig deep into it, the worse it gets. And I think that's basically the surface level TLDR of Drow. Now, Drow have a existing in real life concept before D&D? That's a Lissa question. <laughs> yes. So Drow, or rather we're, because Drow were created by Gary Gygax himself. He did what we have found, look in to sort of Scandinavian old literature and sort of folk stories that were translated or folk stories that were made into sort of poems and these epics called Edda in specifically, I think the one I looked at was the Norwegian one by Snorri Jorlison, I want to say. But the thing about these old documentation is that a lot of Scandinavian culture have very similar sort of supernatural beings or kind of fate. It's not fate creature, but they were very spiritual ritual back then. And I think there there was mistranslations or misinterpretations of some of the things that were said there. And so there were some things that were called elves, kind of like elves. And there were these evil creatures called Svart elves, which were these sort of mischievous little creatures. Again, not a real thing, but they were said to kind of play tricks on people, imitate humans. And he took inspiration from that and built the drow as a sort of comparatively evil version of the good elves that were there in mm -hmm. Dungeons and Dragons. And it, he kind of, it, it, the Edda itself is kind of muddled with whether or not they were, because Druorgar were also from there. <laughs> But a lot of the different kinds of races and species kind of in the Edda may or may not have been muddled together to make one version because it was very complicated and mistranslations and oral stories throughout time. This is something that we've also talked in our podcast. It's very hard to kind of keep things correctly and to separate things when you're looking at stuff that was from way back then that were oral stories passed on from mouth to mouth, generation to generation, and they keep changing and stuff like that. But yeah, it, it came from Scandinavian culture of these beliefs in these small mischievous little elves, I guess you could call them. Mm -hmm. Well, when you look deep enough back into to everything based off of listening to your podcast, everything eventually leads back to Scandinavia or, or Finland. <laughs> Which is very strange as somebody who is from Finland to we, there's not a lot of references to Finland. I, I don't have to tell you. There's six, six million of us. Very small country. 70% of our like country is entirely just forest. And <laughs> our language is entirely different from most other languages. Like we're, we're like the odd one out in that region, in the Nordic region. So 
when when it comes Finland popping up in D and D, the strangest <laughs> sensation for me personally being, what the hell is Finland doing here? Why are you so obsessed with us? But it's interesting. It's interesting. Kaizo obviously also brought in Drow into Pathfinder First Edition, but the lore is very different. What can you tell us about that? Yeah. So in Pathfinder First and Second Edition, there is also a matriarchy, but it functions a little bit differently than and D and D in that it's a little bit less centralized. So a drow came about as a result of a a lot of things came about as a result of something called Earthfall, which was this apocalyptic event where a massive meteor hit Galarian, which is the planet that Pathfinder is all set on. This event affected a lot of things, including the elven population of Galarian. Mm -hmm. When this came about, the elves basically had to figure out what they were going to do because they were going to die. A lot of them actually left the planet, and that's a whole other story. It's one of my favorite parts about the lore. I would love to tell you about it. Elves are aliens. Yes. So some of them, some of the elves chose not to leave and so they tried to flee underground to and now this is where it starts getting similar into the dark lands which are effectively the pathfinder equivalent of the underdark and as they traveled deeper into the dark lands they became affected by the energy of a creature a god trapped in the planet named rovagug who is effectively the embodiment of destruction so these elves became twisted by this power of this god and became drow as a result of the exposure to rovagug and i would argue the trauma of being <laughs> displaced from their home and mm-hmm. in fighting about you know i mean it's one of those situations where was it the power or was it their own inner darkness you know we can get into that later but that is where the drow came about and they came they had physical transformation happen where they became they looked like drow pretty much the same as you described purplish skin white hair white sclera white eyes another main difference between pathfinder and dnd is that rather than having a single matriarchal goddess, the drow are divided into noble houses, and each of those noble houses worships a specific demon lord. And that's kind of how their society is set up. And these noble houses fight each other all the time. Tons of infighting, tons of Mm. rivalry. Mm -hmm. That sounds familiar. (laughs) Tons of rivalry between them. They're always trying to undercut each other. And there's not really a central government so much as they just sort of rule their own houses and then try to undermine each other. That is the primary lore in Pathfinder. All the infighting and stuff sounds really familiar. I didn't (laughs) touch on it, but yeah, they the Drow in D&D also, for clarification, they also have houses. They also have infighting. They also don't have a structure, but mostly that's to when it's written in the description. It's just, oh, they are just so evil and the matriarchy is just so terrible that they can't Mm -hmm. organize themselves because their leader is crap. And I'm just, again, one of our major plights with it. And I should also mention um, Drow in D&D, while they don't worship demons, they do have a relationship with demons. And a lot of, in a lot of the lore, Lolf, the Spider Queen, is also called a 
demon goddess, but also they have a lot of traditions. And I won't get super into it unless you want me to about how certain races that are related to the drow are created with demons. And they don't necessarily worship them, but because of their, I think, I think their placement in the Underdark specifically, like they they just place them really close together somehow in the cosmology. So when you get to like the nitty gritty, it's very, very similar They're, from what it sounds like in the Underdark and the Darklands, how their society works. They just don't have Loth. I had a question about that. Is do they, does Paizo and does Pathfinder give a reason why they sort of, these houses look and worship these demon lords? Was there a reason for that? So given? within the lore of the individual houses, they do kind of talk about how each house kind of has their own, uh, we'll call it special interest. To a certain degree, I think they are tied to the demon lord that they worship. It's pretty loosey-goosey. I would not say that there's a whole lot of clear explanation as to why specific houses worship specific demon lords. You would have to really get into kind of the special interest of each demon lord to really suss that out, which mm -hmm. is deep, deep cut lore. The purposes of somebody just wanting to learn a little bit about them, not really. It's it's more just okay. the, yeah. the chaotic nature of the drow lends itself to worship of demon lords, as you might expect, because they are also chaotically mm -hmm. aligned. Mm -hmm. That brings me to my first question for the trolls. With your analysis, I gave you a bunch of the Pathfinder first and second edition materials so you can do your thing, uh, your in-depth research. So what were the similarities and differences that you noticed between the D&D &D and the Pathfinder version of Drow? So I have just a list because really I just wanted to look at the bestiary version because that was, the, I felt like the most condensed version I could get. And man, I wish I had the time to dig deep into all the books and all the mentions. And I wish I could have done that. But <laughs> alas, I did not have the time. But from what I found with how Drow are described in the bestiary, I saw that they are still classified as an evil race race, which any race that is labeled bad, in my opinion, isn't great. And I know there's some contention on player race versus NPC race versus a culture thing, which I'm sure we will get into. But in terms of similarities and differences, the society tends to be matriarchal, which is the same. I believe that was, and I mean, obviously their appearance, the noble houses, as we've just learned, that's a huge similarity. The ties to to demons as well, but they also have their own kind of distinct differences as well, at least in terms of the bestiary of what I was able to find. But those were the overarching, like the big themes of like, here's their appearance. They are matriarchy. They are classified in most cases. Well, it does say in the books, there are exceptions to it, which I think in later editions of D&D, &D, they started to do that as well. Like hashtag not all drow, but they didn't start out that way. So they still have that weight. So evil race, matriarchy and description ties to demons and their location was all if you want to say the structure of it was basically mm. the same but obviously the inner workings of the lore how they came to be all that stuff seems seems different in a lot of cases which is good because it should be different because they shouldn't have copy and pasted everything that would have been very boring now in pathfinder second edition at least drow is not a playable ancestry though okay. there is the yeah. cavern elf heritage that you can take okay. which basically 
just grants you dark vision. And I think that's part mm. of Paisa's attempt to move away a little bit from the drow and mm-hmm. the negative connotations that come with it. Though we are getting a High Helm book soon, which is all about dwarves and stuff, which I think is going to probably cover some of the Darklands a little bit more. So we might see a return of the drow or at least a a little bit more about their society as it is in Mm -hmm. second edition because part of the lore behind Pathfinder first and second edition is that they are two different times of Galarian history. Stuff that happens in first edition is not necessarily what happens in second edition. So for example, yeah, in in first edition, for example, goblins were the mascot of Paizo as far as monsters go. They were in just about every adventure path, wherever (laughs) they could be thrown in. Little troublemakers, always evil, burning stuff stuff aided dogs but now in second edition they are both a playable ancestry and a much more common part of day-to-day life in normal functional society they have learned to ingrain themselves into the larger society as contributing members as people who work in farm right next to normal Mm -hmm. people all the time so there could be a significant change with how drow end up being societally depending on Mm -hmm. how the events of the first edition adventure paths translate into second edition history and can't really talk about pathfinder drow without mentioning the adventure path that is fully based on them called second darkness which yeah oh i'm sensing something i don't know what it is but i'm excited It is largely regarded as one of the worst adventure paths. Oh, no. It's not great. Not our drow, no. Yeah. It's also their third AP, so a a little bit of grace perhaps could Mm be given for that but you know when you look at the 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 marketability of their adventure paths their first adventure path rise of the rune lords and their second one curse of the crimson throne you cannot find versions of those ap's on their store if you go on to oh. ebay they are super yeah. expensive yeah you can still get the the pdfs of all of those adventures if you still want to play them but mm-hmm. fi- finding physical versions you just can't do it <laughs> meanwhile with second darkness you can find every single yeah book oh. still on their site still gathering dust and wow. i keep seeing because i have a google alert set up for complete adventure paths just to see you know mm-hmm. can i eventually like jade regent or something and second darkness keeps on coming up and i think it's scammers trying to act like this is a rare book <laughs> but it's not <laughs> absolutely not Vic I don't know if you have a little bit more context about why it's so bad before before I go into the little bit of knowledge that um, I have about it so if Funny enough, I've not dug into Second Darkness that much because it's not great. And as a as a GM myself of 1E and 2E, I haven't touched it because it's not something I'm ever interested in running. I mean, there are a lot of it's got a lot of weaknesses, mm-hmm. but if we focus on weakness that we are discussing, which is you no, know, it's depictions.
version of Drow, it is not great. It doesn't really, I mean, there's not a lot to say about it other than it's pretty stereotypical. I mean, it's what you would expect from a game that presents Drow as an evil race and slavers. And I will say it is an Mm -hmm. interesting AP because it is the AP where Drow come into the public consciousness of Galarian. Before Second Darkness, Mm -hmm. nobody knew they existed. (laughs) So that is interesting. I will give it that. And, you know, in another life, in another world, that concept is quite interesting, but it does nothing that I would consider different than you would expect. Uh, The drow are just kind of (laughs) evil slavers, evil crazy slavers. Oh, man. Mustache curling. I'm looking up the publication date. That was published in 2008 and it was still that bad. Yeah. Especially, I would say the first four, I would say four least APs that Paizo published were based directly on names that they played in 3.5. So you have to understand... Yeah, that checks. Up until about halfway through Paizo's life, this was like five or six dudes basically taking their games that they played with their characters and trying to translate them into an AP that anybody could play. No, it's not. Not gonna go well. Um, (laughs) And you know, they did admirably, all things considered. But the problem with trying to create a game out of something you and your buddies played or an audience of Mm -hmm. whoever wants to play it, you're not gonna, it's just not gonna hit the same. And there are a myriad problems with how that could go. And it just wasn't a strong yeah. story, ultimately. It wasn't a strong adventure. But that's that's pretty much all I've got to say about it. So that kind of brings us to probably the root problem with any of these things that we're going to be talking about is that their original development was made by straight white guys who had a concept of something and did their best in either good faith or joking to make it into something cool which brings us to the drow matriarchy stretch (laughs) take a sip of coffee (laughs) buckle up buttercup (laughs) so tell us a little bit about the idea of matriarchy and and my real question is can there be a good matriarchy so how how is this matriarchy described and what would you all suggest a good matriarchy look like oh man uh i'll i think i could start by saying this is how the matriarchy is presented and then lissa you mm-hmm. could take away what a matriarchy mm-hmm. actually is because mm-hmm. you did the research on that and that, yeah. maybe how they could improve it so mm-hmm. the draw matriarchy is awful full stop it's painted as evil it's painted as very social climbing it's painted as a very man-hating society which is not what feminism is about it's not what matriarchies are about men are enslaved men can't climb the social ladder unless they sleep their way to the top. And then when you look at it from a feminist lens, you're just like, wow, this seems Mm. familiar. But it's reversed somehow. I wonder if there's a word for that. And, you know, some examples being that I think the highest honor, quote unquote, that a man can have in drow matriarchal society is basically as a consort or some sort of magic practitioner. And 
that's basically it. They can't be leaders of houses. They can't climb the ranks in the church. They can't really do much of anything. And it's gotten so bad that there is a another drow deity named Veyron, who mm. is Ulf's canonical son. And he is very Ooh. men's rights. <laughs> Which is when you hear that, you're like, I always think of the Parks and Rec, rec, parks and rec clip. Those don't, men's rights don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> but his entire thing is just like down with the matriarchy. We need equality. And he's still painted as a villain for wanting equality for men, which is it's very mushy, gushy and odd. And then there's another goddess that pops up. Her name is Elastri. She is Lolt's canonical other child, her daughter. And she's a good goddess who also wants equality. It's all a big it's all a big mess. They want the gods to fix the problem. Problems, not society as a whole. It's very awful. But the the main thing that really I think got Lissa and I was this very violent, man hating, evil society. Because mm-hmm. fun fact, Drow matriarchy is the only matriarchy in D anD D. But I think I it's safe to say it's the most iconic matriarchies in D anD D. It's the one you think of. And there's there's no good matriarchy in D anD D. And that's a huge root issue of the problem is when you come into contact in a game or in D&D lore with a matriarchy, you only have the biggest one is the draw matriarchy and it's evil. And I think the second closest is a hag matriarchy, which is also evil. So there's not a good equivalent. It's just full on painted as evil, not just for the drow, but also for D&D lore society as a whole. And it's not a real matriarchy either because that's not how real matriarchies are supposed to function. And Lissa can tell you why, because that was that's her context queen hat that I'm going to pass over to her. Yeah, it, it was all of the matriarchies are basically evil aligned or they're downright monsters, which beholders are also a matriarchy. Fun fact. So oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it, it just paints femininity and specifically women because gender is binary here. It just paints them in such a, an evil way. And we have a whole episode mm. on that of why are women always evil and monsters. Mm. <laughs> but in terms of what a matriarchy is, so like according to definitions, it's generally known as a system or society of government that's ruled by women or women, a social organization that's reckoned through a female line. So it passes on from mother to daughter and sort of matrilineal, I think is the word for that. Yeah. And a way, it's a state where older, powerful women it sort of rule in a group. But like what we, or rather what I found in my research when I looked into sort of a better definition because that was a definition from the Oxford Language Dictionary. I wanted to kind of get a better understanding of so who can I look to to actually get an understanding of what a matriarchy is because a definition is one thing but to get a bigger better picture of it. I found somebody called Dr. Heidi Guttner Abendroth who is a German philosopher and researcher of culture and fun fact has been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize twice. So she has a PhD in philosophy in the University of Munich, I think it was, and has done dedicated her life to researching matriarchal societies in real world context. And the way that she defined matriarchies, what was that it's a culture that's centered around a mother without ruling over other members of society. So 
It's not based on domination by any gender. It's based on maternal values, which is includes caretaking, nurturing, negotiating, and equality for all. And yes. it basically <laughs> egalitarianism is the fundamental idea for what a matriarchy is. So what we found out was that actually Drow are not a matriarchy. That's just yeah. a flipped patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing matriarchal about the supposed matriarchy because according to this woman who's dedicated her life to researching matriarchies it, it's nothing about it is matriarchal it's absolutely right. just the patriarchy yeah. but make it women it, it's very much like the the star trek version of what i would expect to to see where they're trying to emphasize the patriarchy but they're like it's patriarchy but different it, it's you're flipping it on its head it's it's patriarchy what we know and what we're used to so taking real world problems and just making it more interesting by changing it somehow interesting and, yeah. in air quotes yeah <laughs> interesting <laughs> it's what you expect but not because it's right. right exactly what can you tell us about the drow matriarchy and how matriarchies are presented so, in Pathfinder um, unfortunately, as a whole <laughs> pretty much by and large that holds true for Pathfinder as well um, there are other matriarchies. The Aji have a matriarchy. Lukatha, which is a monster race, have a matriarchy. There's a country called Holomog, which has a matriarchy. And that country is very interesting because it, they, they're okay. I mean... There's just not a lot about them yet. The other really major example that I can think of would be the Church of Ergothoa, which is a deity of the undead and deity of excess and hedonism. <laughs> And you you can see you can see very quickly how that's gonna go. Argothoa is a bad bad mm. deity, and I wanna I wanna point out to like with undead that gets complicated because the nature of undead has changed between one e and two e. Especially if we're talking one e, undead are pretty much exclusively evil in their nature. So Argothoa mm. kind of epitomizes that idea of undead evil, but also inner corruption and so not great i found this discussion of matriarchy as a flipped patriarchy very interesting from a folklore standpoint i took a really cool class in grad school about folklore and one of the things that really stuck with me and and, and i think this will come up in our conversations about other creatures that we're going to talk about is that a lot of the stories in folklore come about as a misunderstanding of the world around you and fear. And and I can touch on mm -hmm. this, how it comes mm -hmm. up in these other examples as well. But the idea of fearing women is not something that many things really came about until the era of colonialism. It is a Western idea and it is a colonialist idea. So many Western stories have to do with evil witches and evil mothers and evil stepmothers and people who eat women who eat children women imprison Freak. men and use them yep. Um, yep. it's a very yep. western idea if you look at folklore from africa is it really a thing <laughs> or other non-western countries it's just not women women at times represent negative ideas but it's much more complex than just i'm going to eat your children it's, it's so 
I won't go on and on because I'll probably bring this back up again, especially with hags. I have a lot to say about that. In in terms of drow mm-hmm. <laughs> being a matriarchy, yeah, absolutely. It's 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 a matter of just flipping the script, and I think that's based very heavily on this Western idea of mm-hmm. women are the enemy because they get in the way. Women are the enemy because they challenge my authority. So drow, yeah, being under a woman's authority, being yeah. under either a big goddess or a bunch of demon lords and powerful women in charge ultimately why they're bad at the end of the day and it's just kind of silly <laughs> yeah we oh yeah i think the last thing because i'm sure we've run out of time to talk about draw we could talk about draw for a bazillion years but the one thing i will say is the thing that keeps coming up is that while we hate the way drow are in D and the forgotten realms yeah. we still call loth mommy loth we it's, still love her mommy. like she has been done so dirty by D and lore but she's still an iconic character that needs to be held up and needs to be changed. And we like to think of her more as a feminist icon who has yeah. been misinterpreted because all of her history was written by men. Like, what would her history yeah. look like? What would the drow history look like if women penned it? And it's when you look at it through that lens, man, I hope that's what Pathfinder yeah. and what D&D do in the future because it will be so rad to see. I'm manifesting that. And so we, you, we literally say, in our own personal chats, have you prayed to Lolth today? <laughs> yeah. Have you talked yeah. to mommy today? So it doesn't have to be this way, which is the yeah. sad thing. But like, if we keep pushing for it and manifesting <laughs> it, I don't know, maybe it'll change. But like, she'll always be mommy Lolth to us, like, even yeah. though yeah. her lore sucks. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, on the topic of Mommy Lol, like, you can also look at the, because we did touch on that on our episode, you can look at, okay, so the drow are through, or rather in D&D specifically, I don't know about Pathfinder, they do have a very distinct link to spiders. And when you look at spiders, you have certain spiders that are have the big superior female spiders and you have these tiny male spiders and the female spiders are larger and stronger and they they eat their their male conquests and you know but again if you're making because the drow are a humanoid race yeah and we are yeah yeah. so and spiders are animals okay if you make them animals that's one thing but because they are humanoid they're still supposed to be based on humans so there's this very weird of are they humanoid or are they animals and when you make something yeah when you Mm -hmm. make something an animal you're making it an other a monster or something and so it it just it gets muddy pick one or the other and stick with it also because i feel It's just they don't know what they want to be. They want to be something. They want to be something memorable, which I mean, to their to their point there, they are definitely memorable for not a good reason, but not in a good way. Like, so, yeah, I don't know. It's just it's Mm. very complicated when it comes to all of it. No, yeah, I just wanted to bounce off of what was said about the. The, the idea of Lolth being iconic and, and ooh, it would be cool if we got another interpretation. So funny, you should mention that because in Pathfinder, one of the demon lords that Drow worship traditionally in 1E is Nocticula. And Nocticula is the goddess. She's, she's a demon lord who killed other demon lords, became extremely powerful. And because she killed all the, I'm, I'm talking 30 demon lords, okay? Like in 2E, iconic. As a result of wow. some stuff that Love happens in it. 1E, Nocticula <laughs> becomes a goddess. 
and is no longer evil. So they've not gone into it very much yet. As you can imagine, that's going to make things a little bit complicated for that group of drow who worshipped her as a demon lord because she's no longer a demon lord and she's no longer evil. She's chaotic neutral. Mm. So if we're talking opportunity, Ooh. right? Wow. I like there that. There it is. That's one eighth, that's one eighth of is. the drow population mm-hmm. there it is. that has had their that's deity 100%. basically. Yeah. yeah. Their patron both reach godhood and also abandon evil they're gonna have an identity crisis and it's gonna be awesome i love it yeah that sounds really rad and interesting overall that's what i find pathfinder does a lot more especially now in tui than just having the the strict gender binary of men men good or or women good is having complexity there are a lot of societies that are Mm -hmm. non-matriarchal in pathfinder but are led by women, you know, mm-hmm. and women who do both good things and bad things, or sometimes do are good people who do bad things or are bad people who end up doing good things eventually. Back to back to the goblins that I mentioned before, one of the major figures in legends is General Azersi, female hobgoblin who took the goblins from this big goblin blood war and got them to ingrain in stable mm-hmm. society forming an entire hobgoblin nation even at the start she was a hobgoblin who was doing hobgobliny things that mm-hmm. you would typically expect raiding and pillaging and all that stuff but eventually worked out of it and took her people and made them be better than what they were before. Whereas contrasting a heroic figure that you typically see is Cao Jin, the Ruby Phoenix, who's a asexual woman, but she screwed everything up, even though she's viewed as a good character because she kept on taking parts of the world and mm-hmm. incorporating it into this demiplane that she had called the Eternal Tapestry or something tapestry. Even though she was trying to do good, it ended up that that was causing a lot of harm, which she didn't know Mm -hmm. about until she visited the axiomatic plane and disappeared for thousands of years, both trying to redeem herself by doing acts of good and also having to forget how to do those demiplane things. So she had to work to overcome the damage. And that's more what I'd come to see is not just what is the best matriarch, Mm -hmm. but let's have women be complex characters complicated be, yeah and so i i really appreciated seeing that but the last thing i wanted to talk about drow before we move on is you all typically also talk about the artwork that you see mm-hmm. in D. so what did you think about the artwork for drow between first and second edition i remember making a note saying that it is a huge improvement from and i think just pathfinder art mm-hmm. in general is a pretty big improvement they still have a lot of problems with boob plate armor which is a big stickler for a lot of fantasy arts that you it's not a pathfinder exclusive problem obviously D&D has probably more of it to be quite honest so it's not flawless by any means and the drow when it's a woman is usually portrayed in more skin tight clothes but her posing is much more powerful and her yeah. outfit doesn't outwardly scream you know dominatrix <laughs> like the ones in D&D do later D&D 5th edition has gotten a lot better 4th edition 
costume was pretty okay. But from OD&D to 3.5, drow were basically dominatrixes whenever they were a, a feminine version of a drow. And then male versions of drow was just drizzed. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> just yeah. drizzed. So I think it's a big improvement for what I saw. It still has a little bit, oh, there's leather armor. There's a bit of cleavage here. It's it's a bit more form-fitting. But it's way more varied, which I appreciated so much because after looking at so much D&D art with Drow, just seeing again and again, oh, there's a whip. Oh, okay. There's a push-up bra. Oh, she's <laughs> naked. Okay, cool, 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 cool. <laughs> you know? So definitely an improvement. I, I like to think that they learned from D&D's mistakes and paid homage in a certain way, but did it a lot better. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. And I, I do like the artwork style as well of Pathfinder. And you can definitely see that they took inspiration of D&D, but made sort of improvements. Well, I mean, especially if you compare it to older editions, Charity mm-hmm. was talking about, they were very much, let's just say stereotypes were involved. And that's one of the big things that we talk about on our podcast is stay away from stereotypes. And because that comes with so much baggage, if you're gonna, if you're gonna use something, something that's relatively looking like something to do with BDSM, you're gonna give them a bad name. If it's gonna be something with whips and chains, it's yeah, because and, and it's an evil race. Mm-hmm. That's that's exactly the connotation in that is not going to be good because like there's nothing wrong with BDSM and then but when you equate it to an evil race in D and D and you equate BD- traditional BDSM equipment and poses and uh, make but, an entire ancestry m- there make an entire yeah. ex- Exactly. And then you tie that to evil, then you have the connotation of, oh, they dress like somebody who's into BDSM. BDSM is evil, which is 100% not the case at all. And then there's that it's done with a lack of consent, which is entirely the opposite of what the BDSM community is all about. Exactly. There's always that question of there's always consent there. But when you tie Mm -hmm. a drow and it's an evil race and, you know, you're doing BDSM stuff, but because it's evil, they do it for shits and giggles. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) So any final thoughts uh, about the drought that you have in your examination of Pathfinder and your knowledge of the D&D drow? I would say that everything that we usually talk about in our podcast, words carry weight. I talk a lot about rhetoric. That's what some of my degrees are in. Not specifically rhetoric, but I looked into a lot of them for my degrees. And the meaning of words and how much imagery and weight are carried with them. When you use a word like drow, which has so much baggage, specifically from D&D, and they got it from all these places, when you have the connotations of of sexism and racism and evil race and evil matriarchy. When you take that from D&D and you put it into another setting, they can be making a lot of amazing changes. And from what I've heard, they are making a lot of amazing changes and they have the potential in Pathfinder to make a lot of amazing changes. However, when you continue to use a word like drow, you're still carrying all that baggage from D&D. Just like when you use a word like banshee or hag or beholder or whatever, that brings about certain images. It brings about certain 
certain histories, even if you don't mean it to, even if you paint Drown a completely new way in this new rewrite, in this any new additions, people are going to see Drow and they're going to think about the D&D Drow and how kind of awful they are, even though they're also trying to improve it. So while I'm having really good impressions of what Pathfinder is doing moving forward, and I think they're doing an amazing job and being and probably at least more publicly aware and actually going forward and making changes. Whereas when D&D is like, oh, yeah, we're going to change the Drow. When? Where? I don't see anything. <laughs> yeah, where is uh, it? Where is it? I saw what a line in Volos or Tasha's once. Oh, here's some Drow stuff. No, that's not enough. When even if they do change it, they... I I would petition for them to change the name so yeah. that they have their own race of dark elves because Which I think I, it is yeah. coming because I hope it is. Drow yeah. is probably a, an OGL term, which I know with the remaster yes. they are completely mm-hmm. divorcing themselves from Yeah, the cuz the ORC and Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. they we've already seen examples of them doing this the the troglodytes from D&D and Pathfinder first edition and second edition early on were changed to be called Zolgaths. Um, and that's just that's just one example. So I imagine when Drow make their reappearance in mm-hmm. yeah. second edition, especially after the remaster, they'll be called something different. Which yes, and they should be. I agree. Gives Paizo a good opportunity to say there there was a big change with how they worked, and perhaps it has to do with that change with yeah. the, the demon goddess or mm-hmm. demon demon lord and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I like I know why you would use something like the word hag to describe a monster that resembles a hag and has the history of a hag because you get the imagery like when I say hag something in a game everybody exactly knows what it is and then it's just like flavoring on top of on top of the what you thought was a hag but oh it's this and they do these things and and these things and this is why it's different and this is like our interpretation of it I I understand that but with naming something thing that has that much baggage, it's a double-edged sword. Yes, you understand on the one hand that I immediately have the recognition of I know that word, I know what it means, and this is just a variation of it. But you also have that baggage on the negative side of like it carries all of that weight of the bad stuff and it's kind of going into stereotypes and when you have stereotypes, it's reminding you of, oh, hags are old. That's ageism. Like all all hags are crooked. They have these kinds of noses. This is their appearance. And then that's when you use that enough through culture, that's going to pile up and pile up. And then suddenly it's this big stereotype and, you know, has all of this baggage attached to it, even if you do change it. But it's it's just iffy when you do use those names. Like, I understand why people do it because, you know, it's easy, but it doesn't mean it's not maybe the best option. You just always. need to yeah. make a conscious choice. Yeah, you know, like language is hard. Thinking of words for things is hard. Thinking of original names for things is hard. Relying on the human recognition of hag or drow or banshee or whatever that it helps a lot with DMs too. To be quite honest, because some DMs just don't like describing things, and that's just not their strong suit, and that's okay. So saying you see a hag, and then all of your players like hag, I I know what that is. Okay, (laughs) you see a banshee. Oh, banshee, I know what that is. Instead of saying oh, doing mercifying it. Oh, you see floating visage and with a blue sheen and a long mouth that's gaping at you. I like wish some I was DMs. Adjectives when I'm in the oh. <laughs> <laughs> Six 
years of writing school, man. That's all it takes. <laughs> That's it. But yeah, so there is credence, like Lissa is saying. It's not necessarily a bad thing. You just got to be aware of it. Either use it to your advantage or change it in a certain way or make the call as a DM or a game designer or whatever. Just make up your own word and let maybe an like art piece do the Culture and language, yeah. right? Is so much of art, and this goes back to my discussion of folklore, so much of me, so much meaning mm-hmm. in our world is formed from these impressions that we had thousands of years ago and and you know a lot of i think i think people are resistant to those changes because of it's it's scary right you know, people get real mad when you suggest making changes mm-hmm. this because it's familiar and i mean familiar on a almost cellular level mm-hmm. right some of this mm-hmm. stuff is deeply ingrained in our global consciousness in our cultural consciousness. And so much like folklore that is yep. that stems yep. from things that we fear mm-hmm. or we don't understand, I think a lot of this resistance that people have to these changes, right? It is scary. You if you don't understand what's going on there and all you see is somebody say, I want to change this race so that it's no longer sexist. That's that is disturbing, I think, on some level. And I'm not Mm -hmm. don't mistake me for like I'm not excusing people who are assholes about it. Right. (laughs) But I think there is this sense of so much of this stuff is familiar instantly. Like you said, what a hag is instantly when somebody says the word. But that's just a matter of rebuilding adding on to our cultural consciousness i think it's it's a natural i think that's what people don't understand this is a natural development of culture it's going to change at some point it's going to change all three of you have have started to to meld over into the next creature that we wanted to go over which is the infamous hag which has a big presence in both D&D and Pathfinder, both in first and second edition. So let's talk a little bit about the hag. What is a hag for people who... for some reason, have avoided the cultural understanding of of what it is. I think Lissa would probably be the best. She did the context for our episode on that one. Like yeah. what what are, what hags are in culture. They're, bas- they're basically witches. And they are specifically those kinds of witches that in Western history, specifically, there's a lot of witch hunting that went on. Mm-hmm. And we look at something like the Malleus Maleficarum. So written in 1486, the Hammer of the Witches which was basically a bestiary for how to find a witch. What does a witch look like? What does it do? What? How do you find one? How do you kill one? How do you make it talk? So, which was sort of, it, it was a bestiary and it was very sort of given a very scientific outlook when they started looking at women specifically. Because in, in my personal opinion and based on some of the research that I've done, it was basically like all of the witch trials and everything Thing was and can be seen as a purge of females and feminines and non-binaries and anyone who stuck out and didn't fit 
the image of a patriarchy. Mm-hmm. It was just oppressing those people. It was mm-hmm. a purge. And yeah. it was making these people into monsters. It was making these people into something that was to be feared and saying that they had power, saying that they made deals with the devil. They had sex with demons. They had, because they feared them, because women had control of reproduction. So Mm. midwives were able to grant abortions. Midwives helped with bringing babies into the world. Men had no control in that. Like, they had no control. Mm -hmm. You didn't have white men doctors who were able to bring babies into and make decisions of life and death. Like, it was all run by women. And that was something that they feared. And women had this weird thing where they were able to seduce men which was a very terrifying power i just i just had the image because we're talking about hags of a hag seducing a man <laughs> so which i know is the power of some hags i think some hags can shapeshift which we haven't gotten into yet but i just had the most yeah this hilarious image of just this traditional hag with boils on her face long hair huh. a traditionally older woman just <laughs> waltzing over to some puritan pete saying you want to uh, get a yeah. coffee <laughs> No, hag hips don't lie. No, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Because one of those, the Malleus Malvacarum, one of those groups that was persecuted was older women, right? Like that's where we think the hags come from. Yeah, because older women had knowledge. Older women knew what it was before, you know, these times wherein the patriarchy started rising up when capitalism started coming in. And it was specifically capitalism that was favoring a certain kind of people, which were, Mm -hmm. and white men specifically. And, you know, it was the it was a meant meant to be oppressing these people and purging them and anyone who didn't fit that description so anyone who was lgbtqia anyone who was just stood out from society and it became bigger than that and it was people taking out their neighbors because they said something bad yeah. about them once and it was turning right. on women it was it was it was crazy and everything but that's not only that because i read the something called satanic feminism by a swedish author and researcher per faxneld there is historically speaking women have always had links to satan so the fact that they just made a link that oh witches have sex with demons and you know satan lucifer and they're they're twins and you know bound to each other women have always had links to lucifer and feminine figures to lucifer and women have also also always been fuck-ups eve made the mistake of eating the apple eve was talking to the snake mm-hmm. what was this bitch doing why was she doing that <laughs> at pandora opened right. the goddamn box what the fuck are these women doing so it's the right. vilification of women just in a new form which was witches and women specifically older women because a lot of the people who were killed were older women who had knowledge who had power mm-hmm. who had who knew what life was like before everything changed and who were independent they had herbology <laughs> they had land they had knowledge of herbology and were able to grant abortions and they were women old women specifically 
specifically had this kind of power that was not good for capitalism, not good for the new era that they were trying to go into, and not good for the patriarchy. So if we just wipe them out, that'll help everyone. And yes. I think that's exactly where hags came from, is that ageism, that sexism, is that that description in the Malleus Maleficarum of hags, of what they could look like, what they could be, what they were doing. You know, they were stealing penises and keeping them in their cupboards kind of thing. <laughs> Forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The f- fear of the other, fear of being disempowered mm-hmm. fear exactly of that fear of the dying. other i mean like you said these women were the people i mean could have ostensibly been the people who kept everybody alive you know they bring people into the world mm-hmm. they can take people out of the world too and they can make sure that exactly. you stay on yeah. the on the world if you're ill they like they do mm-hmm. wield a lot of power and influence and from a Western standpoint, especially post-medieval period, that's 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 no bueno, right? <laughs> so it just makes perfect sense that 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 that's kind of what happened. And then later on, yeah. when we yeah. get people like uh, the Brothers Grimm and all these all these men who wrote <laughs> these fairy tales that were cultural, right? Mm-hmm. They were collecting these stories. Um, those stories came out of those feelings of fear and those actions that were to, mm. I mean, it's it's a it's a feedback loop of history and culture feeding mm. off of each other and yeah. creating these stories and as all of us men intrinsically know is as soon as you women start thinking for yourselves or getting power, we got to knock you down a peg. <laughs> so how how is that translated into the D&D lore of the hag briefly? Oh, I mean, it's basically a carbon copy. I don't need to really get super into it because D&D hags are the hags you see in folklore, right? They eat babies. They steal them because hags are in D&D. And I believe in a lot of folklore. Please correct me if I'm wrong, Vic, but they are intrinsically tied to motherhood. They are, they steal babies, they eat babies, they're jealous of youth, so they're the old woman ages kind of archetype that it's really just translated into stats and into lore. They don't really change too much in D&D. They have the different types of hags. They have the Anna's hag, green hag, Z hag, which I know probably Pathfinder has most of those, but also some other hags as well. The only thing that's a little bit different with D&D hags is their origin story, which TLDR, they all came from this wannabe goddess named Segulun. This is a Dragon Magazine article, so you'll never find this in an actual D&D book. We had to dig in owls of <laughs> dragon to find this. Deep, oh, it's deep, deep lore right here. So they... Uh, there's this woman who ascended to be a common goddess named Segulun, and she was very vain, and she neglected her worshippers, her charges. And in punishment for that, the the powers that be or the higher gods at the time punished her by putting wrinkles on her face because obviously there's a punishment, right? So she grew uglier and uglier, quote unquote, but really just became older and older and became more and more hag-like as she became more and more evil. And her original worshippers were transformed into hags and hags can make new hags either through changelings or the Lord Milwaukee from there. So in d d it's it's pretty cut and dry. And even when they did try to do their own original lore with Segulun, they made it worse making this goddess have a punishment for neglecting her charges by making her older because 
society views age as a bad thing and as a punishment for some reason, specifically for women. Women are not allowed to age. We are sold thousands of anti-aging products and we have to societally wear makeup and never show or even speak of our age. You can't ask a lady her age. It's not proper. So D&D really stuck close to the to the chest on, on that one. Didn't really stray too terribly far, which is unfortunate, but true. Now, the thing that I noticed when going through the Pathfinder, at least the first edition, first bestiary was hags were pretty much the feminine monster. Mm-hmm. There, there were not a whole lot of artistic depictions of feminine monsters or monsters with feminine shapes. There were a lot of hags who pretty much comprised the entirety of any sort of woman that showed up in the first bestiary. So Vic, what can you tell us about the history of the Pathfinder tag? Not a lot of differences between Pathfinder and D&D. Same kind of ideas. There are probably more kinds of hags, which is also just in general, Pathfinder, especially Pathfinder 1E, I think a lot of what they attempted to do was expand. They did a lot of expansion, adding more types of things. So there are, I think, at least eight or nine different kinds of hags, maybe maybe, maybe even ten in Pathfinder. And for the most part, they follow the same kind of idea, you know, seducing men. Having them have their baby, make, make, making babies and then switching out the babies, making changelings that will then become hags later if they follow the calling, which is what basically mm-hmm. a changeling becomes old enough. They get this basically spider sense that tells them to go find their hag mother and become a hag. There are a few other t- interesting types that I think don't 100% fit that bill. One specific to Pathfinder are moon hags, who are basically apocalypse hags that worship the god of the apocalypse they're pretty cool they're pretty they're pretty cool from in terms of hags that's probably the one that i would say is the least tied specifically to woman equals bad (laughs) banding on that in terms of the hag itself i will say there are a couple of interesting deity entries that i'd like to talk about Mm -hmm. so there's not really a progenitor hag there is in DD. there are there is a demon lord named Mistama who is kind of uh, serves the same purpose. She's basically a hag demon lord and really represents kind of the the lustful, deceptive, cruel nature of what you would consider a hag. Right. So not super interesting from that standpoint. The more interesting deity that I wanted to talk about was Girana. She's called the Angry Hag. And interestingly enough, is not worshipped so much by hags as she is worshipped by people who are discarded from society. So prostitutes, people with disabilities, people with visible formities, people who are cast out from society for one reason or another, a lot, lot of women. While this isn't really in the text... I have spoken to people and I've covered this deity myself in my on my Twitter who have taken this deity and uh, like really kind of feel like it's unfair that she's a chaotic evil deity and have taken this deity and sort of re I guess what's the word that I'm looking for uh reclaimed yes reclaimed this deity 
Because really and truthfully, any deity that accepts the unwanted <laughs> is more complicated than that. You know, the, vengeance is a big part of it, right? But like, <laughs> uh -huh. you know, mm. Calistria is a deity of vengeance and she's not just immediately considered evil. To, to kind of get back to the original point, mm -hmm. I think despite there being a lot of kind of cut and dried hag stuff in Pathfinder, I think there are people who have developed for Pathfinder and written for Pathfinder who at the very least have seen potential for the hag the idea of the hag to be expanded on and re redeemed on some level but it, it, in general I would I would not <laughs> I would not put it that far above D&D in terms of its concept yeah so there are many kinds of Hags in both first and second edition. Some of them that we added were the Anis Hag, the Ash Hag, the Green Hag, the Night Hag, the Sea Hag, the Blood Hag, the Moon Hag, the Stone Hag, the Storm Hag, and the Winter Hag, which is a lot of different kinds of hags. It's kind of the Eevee of, <laughs> of hags, yeah. one for each elemental type. Mm, yeah. And looking at the notes, they're all basically kind of the same in how they operate. They just have differences in their elements. Obviously, yeah. the sea hag deals with the sea. The winter hag deals with snow. And they they have different methods oh, no. of... They have different methods of luring in people and why they hunt who they do. But one of the biggest aspects of hags that impacts players most often is that they are a core aspect of the changeling mm -hmm. which is a versatile heritage that any player can add on to their normal or are they yes they are a versatile heritage so that can be added to any player in lieu of having one of the ancestral heritages that people usually have and what this means is that as a changeling you are someone who was intentionally brought into the world because of a hag who replaced either someone else's baby or impregnated mm -hmm. or got pregnant and you know had you so you are intrinsically linked to hags interesting that is interesting yeah i know in i know in dnd hags can be a warlock patron because in later editions they are classified as archfey and archfey is one of the type of patrons you can have you might yeah. be able to get away with homebrewing some sort of sorcerer origin but it's not canon i think it'd be a cool ass idea but they don't really have anything like that in canon unfortunately i think that the closest they get in DD is saying that you can specifically have a hag as a patron yeah yes that's awesome <laughs> also, yeah, that's that's cool. that the baba yaga who we'll talk about in a second not really a hag but is a, a witch patron mm -hmm. that you can select so hags hags actually have a pretty prominent role in pathfinder you know whether you're actually encountering them as monsters or not now the one thing that i noticed as one thing i was going to try to do but ended up not having time to do was look at the amount of art in first edition and compare it to pathfinder second edition and see how much of the art is represents women in first edition how much 
much does it in second edition? The thing that I saw as I was going through this was that in first edition, there really wasn't a lot of women monsters, or if they were, they were women-specific monsters, Mm -hmm. and they came in two types, sexy or hag. Uh, That's the two, yeah. Yeah, wasn't a whole lot of... I mean, there were different types of monsters, but generally, if they weren't a hag, Mm -hmm. they were some form of human female who was shapely, barely clothed, really sexy. Whereas in Pathfinder 2nd Edition, something that they did was they started depicting other monsters in feminine ways, and not always in sexy ways. There are, of course, still the succubus who there was a big oh my God. thing within the Grognard community about <laughs> they desexified the uh, not <laughs> But on the whole, a lot of monsters, if they aren't inherently showing muscular biceps, very male-coded features, yeah. there are some normal monsters who are have female identifying marks, you know, boobs that you can see through chest plating or longer hair or the kind of wider hips that you would expect to see on women and not portrayed in overly sexy ways. The one that immediately comes to mind when I'm thinking about it is the artwork for the bugbear in second edition. And there's also one for orc woman who, again, is not all the orcs are big, huge, muscular, but then you don't have this tiny petite orc woman. They're big orc women and or not exactly attractive orc women. So there are more women as monsters depicted in second edition. But the question that I wanted to bring up is I get why in first edition they had the hag as their typical woman-oriented monster. But do we need more? Which it feels weird as a guy to say is should we be hitting more women? Should we be killing more women <laughs> monsters? Do we need male hags? Or what? what is the balance between having a good representation of... So the, the, the overall question being, what is the balance between having monsters who are representative, but not exclusively yeah. just women or just men? Essentially, the, I keep going back to Pokemon examples. <laughs> it's fun coming up, but... The idea of Nidoran, there is just the Nidoran male or just the Nidoran female, and but all the other Pokemon can be either or. So do we need gender-specific monsters, or is it better for monsters to be able to be, you know, either masculine or or feminine, since we keep going to gender as a binary, mm-hmm. but what, what are your guys' takes on how gender is shown in the bestiaries between D&D and Pathfinder? Well, I we covered this a little bit when we talked about women as monsters. <laughs> I think our episode is literally called Women Are Monsters. And yeah. we looked into an article that specifically set, studied, an article that specifically studied bestiaries and bestiaries in Dungeons and Dragons. And they pointed to the core issue, not necessarily being that there are 
feminine presenting specific monsters. That's not really the problem. The problem is when they are depicted, you were pointing out earlier, the only times you see a feminine body are it's either voluptuous and sexy or it's the hag because society demonizes both of those things, right? And you see that personified in a bestiary. You see women can't be sexy. Women can't be old. Women can't be A, B, C, D, E, F, G. So really it's it's not a it's it's not a question of should there be because I think yeah you can have you know gender or sex specific monsters you just need to be conscious of how they what specifically are you tying to a bestiary what are you tying to being evil or monstrous that the players are going to fight literally or sometimes you know if you're in like a non-battle campaign maybe try to bargain with but most of the time fight on first glance so if you do have a specific woman presenting feminine presenting race think about presenting them not in anything that's specifically demonized by society just make them look like feminine people not over exaggerated don't make them the quote unquote ugly hag don't make them the quote unquote sexy succubus have them just be normal looking and then yeah be evil but just don't over exaggerate features that are already demonized by society and then do what Pathfinder is doing and then present monsters that aren't necessarily specifically like a woman only race or woman only monster and present feminine zombies or present feminine death knights or something that's traditionally you think of and you think of a masculine body type to switch it and have it be a feminine body type or something. So I hope that kind of answers your question. It's a bit murky, but in in my opinion, it's not a matter of if there should be because I don't think there's any problem with it. It's just how they're presented. And like think about the context and the implication of putting an evil or a thing to fight in a bestiary and what you're going to draw conclusions from you know, with specific body parts and stuff or poses too, because a lot of it is art <laughs> specifically. Right. Yeah. Some of it is also abilities and stats, but Go ahead. the majority Go ahead. when you're flipping through the, the bestiary, you look at the art first. Yeah. Yeah. I think my take on that is I'm sort of on the same page as Sure Day and while you can sort of dive, I think always diversifying something as gender is good. So even I'm not even just saying that make more feminine monsters or make more masculine monsters because monsters can be monsters. You can have something that's a monster that has neither feminine nor masculine leaning tendencies. It mm. can be androgynous. It can be sort of night on. Uh, neither nor my favorite example of monsters is the movie alien where it's you don't it it has a gender but you can't tell mm. and it turns out that it is spoiler alert if you haven't seen alien i guess this is big news for you but it is female <laughs> what what so you should definitely yeah. yeah maybe have a spoiler <laughs> warning at the top of this episode or something maybe. <laughs> spoiler for a alien movie it's <laughs> like one of the plot twists at the end if you don't know but it's because yeah so it, it's not not really about how many women monsters there are compared to how many men monsters there are. It's more about how you depict them if they are. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with gender. It can 
be to do with gender, but it's more about how you portray gender there. And it's because mm-hmm. when it comes to representation in D&D, it's you want to be represented in the good guys. But when you're representing monsters, that's a whole different thing. It's yeah. it can be either or it can be neither. It, it They could be just asexual and have like nothing that's gender identifying on them for a point. It, but yeah, I think I have no way to round this up. So, yes. coming coming at this topic from a non-binary standpoint the the issue with genderizing monsters right is if you make anything about an aspect of a person that they cannot control right you're born in that race if you're born a gender that's your gender if you're born with a disability you have a disability None of those things, in my opinion, could inform someone's moral character. And the, that's that's the sticky wicket that you get in when when you like, hey, this race is all women. Even if they are, if they're an evil race, we were talking about before. I mean, if you if you condense you condense somebody to the to the content of their the contents of their being that they can't control you're gonna run into this problem every time there's gonna be somebody who says that really hurts me because as somebody with a disability it really pisses me off that you know victor frankenstein's sidekick is a weird nasty looking little dude and he's bad every in every depiction he's a little nasty evil man or he's stupid the other thing is life is so complicated people are so complicated you have to work for it a little bit but you can always find way to imbue someone with evil qualities in a way that doesn't take away from their this is relative but humanity right their personhood would be a better way of putting it and Especially lately, I will say this for Pathfinder, especially in 2E, they have made a a big effort in in creating villains that aren't just evil because they're blank, because they're uh, whatever. Evil because something about them is just not like maybe there had something happen to them. They, they, they their culture has taught them something that is negative. They're, like it's not just oh. I'm a vampire, so I'm evil, you know, to the point where you can play an undead race now. You can be a skeleton. You can be a lich and be a good person. They need to, they need to get on that. Yeah, that might be coming. We don't know. I mean, that's the thing. The fun thing about 2E is they've only really gotten started, you know? <laughs> so, like, the, the possibilities are endless. But, but yeah, I mean, I guess that's my thing, right? Just, mm, yeah. Ultimately, gender, race, uh, where you where you live... <laughs> ability your your health your body size your body type none of those things in my opinion should factor into the quality of your moral character that's i think that's the big speed bump ultimately right you can you know nitpick but like that's the big thing that you have to avoid in order to avoid all these mm-hmm. all these problems yeah, <laughs> yeah. dd and prep finder and other other games have run into over and over again you know our awareness of these things has changed so much now one of the things that i wanted to talk about with the hags then is what could pathfinder do with them because i i do know for a fact that some of the paizo devs or you know paizo people do listen to this show just because i'm so cool (laughs) so you get to 
talk directly to them. One of the things that we pointed out in the notes was a part about the hag that Charday, I think, really loved. Yes. Which is that some believe that hags possess no true form or body of their own, but instead manifest from society's fear of aging. That no known male hags exist has also puzzled scholars, but perhaps this is but another way in which hags mock society by presenting themselves as awful stereotypes of elderly women. Yeah. So with with that kind of context, what would you suggest changing about the hag to make it so that it's not such a bad stereotype of mm-hmm. of women or how hags have historically been used as a way to demonize women? Right. I, I have a two part answer. The first part has to do with that quote. And I say, go with that. <laughs> Make that your entire personality. You have, there's a lot of great ideas just in those couple of sentences of just making them a manifestation of society's own fear. How how cool is that? Absolutely. I read that yeah. and I was like, that's genius. I love that so much. You need to, I think I put in the notes, why isn't this the first paragraph? This needs, they need to expand on this. If it's not already canon lore, it needs to be because I loved that. And I, oh, just chef's kiss. If if you want to make them different, if you want to improve on them, start with that, build that, and then let it inform every different type of hag. Have the different types of hags be different stereotypes about older women. Have one that's really bad at flying broomsticks because old <laughs> women are bad at driving. Have one be one that has memory problems because one of our great fears in aging is losing our memory, losing our wits. Have be that be their entire personality. Lean into that would be beautiful. And I hope they go along that. I tackled hags. We have lore rewrites on our Patreon. And I rewrote the lore of D&D hags for that. Mm-hmm. And how I tackled it was I leaned into the witches stereotype a lot and like how they were, how hags originally came from the witch trials and ageism. But instead of making the manifestations, I had society create them. Society created hags and forced them to flee. And they're not aligned in any way. They just have this generational trauma of being nixed from society as being the first ever wizards that were ever alive. They were three women and just kind of mirroring the Salem Rich trials almost and have them flee to the Feywild and have them not be evil at all, but be dealing with generational trauma in different ways. Some that may be construed as evil, some that may be construed as neutral, and some that may be construed as a bit more forgiving on humanity. I think the biggest thing tying those maybe two suggestions together, the way that I personally have chosen to depict tags in my game, maybe how Paizo goes forward with their own Pathfinder lore is to not divorce ageism and our fear of aging and our fear of older women from evil and start there, start there and also take alignment out of it. Because the more I look into stuff, I'm like, I freaking hate alignment, man. I hate how it puts you in a box. I hate how all creatures are evil. I hate that. So that's a personal thing. I know alignment is very helpful, especially to new players. And I know it used to have a lot of mechanical benefits in early TTRPGs. But personally, in my game, I'm like, oh, for all my monsters and villains, I don't even I don't even look at it. 
I don't even look at it for my PCs anymore because everything is so complicated. So taking the alignment out of it and then divorcing from ageism, I think. I have good news for you then, Sharday. <laughs> kind of piggybacking off of what you've said, the, yeah, the yeah. idea. Well, yeah. I mean, it goes right along with everything I've been saying today about folklore and fear, right? Everything, everything that we fear, we turn into these manifestations of that fear. And fear isn't always a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fear keeps you safe Absolutely. sometimes. And and I, I think that idea of generational trauma that you brought up as well, I don't know necessarily like if it would fit great with what Pathfinder wants to do. Yeah. I don't know. But the idea of, yeah, fear keeping you safe, generational trauma. You don't want these things to happen to you. You don't want to be hunted by society. But you also, yeah, you don't want it. You don't want to lose your memory. You don't want to lose yourself. You don't want to become frail and weak. All of these stereotypes mm-hmm. of, of hags and witches that we have. So the idea that society creates these monsters, these, these monstrous hags, mm-hmm. I, I like that a lot. And it would take, I mean, it, it would it, it would put the responsibility for them on the, I guess, the oppressor. Yeah. The real villain is society. Mm-hmm. All along. <laughs> it's not incorrect, though. I mean, the only thing I would have to add is that I don't think there's necessarily necessarily anything inherently wrong with a regional hag and that's another strength of pathfinder is they loved they love bringing in a diverse multicultural team and saying give us give us something of you give us something of your culture and leaving it in and i mean different societies have different fears different anxieties so that ties right in so stepping away from more of the elemental part of how hags currently are of stone, winter, blood, and making it about fear. I really like that. I think that would be a really cool direction for them to take. For one of our last topics, if we have time, is so far as we have brought up these comparisons with the drow and the hag, there's been a lot of crossover between what D&D did and then what Pathfinder ended up having to do because they were porting over creatures from from D&D. And a lot of that lore is stuck. Maybe it can change in the future. But one thing that Pathfinder did bring over that I think that they changed a lot is one of the subjects that you covered, which is also one of my favorite aspects of Pathfinder, which is the Baba Yaga. She exists in the Saga Lands, which is my personal favorite section of of Pathfinder, just because I like wintry places and stuff. But it's interesting that the Baba Yaga exists both in real life lore, in D&D, and in Pathfinder. Mm -hmm. Some of my favorite lore of the Baba Yaga actually comes from the comic book Hellboy, where they did a very accurate depiction of the folklore version of the Baba Yaga, making her not exactly, she's still a villain, but one who Hellboy could talk to in a Mm, way, mm -hmm. which I thought was really interesting. Tell us a little bit about the real life lore of Baba Yaga and then the D&D lore. Then we'll talk about how it has changed dramatically for Pathfinder. Mm -hmm. So Baba Yaga is a, is kind of a very well-known folklore figure. So I'm sure Vic has a lot to say about Baba Yaga and way more (laughs) information than I have just based on doing one week of research on Baba Yaga. But Baba Yaga basically comes from the Russian, Ukraine, and Belarus 
sort of region and has been around for at least since the 18th century. And when we're talking about folktales, I mean hundreds of different kinds of folktales and is one of the oldest, most persistent character in Slavic folklore specifically, which fun fact alongside another D&D well-known D&D demon as well, which comes from Slavic folklore. But she's described as an ogress in some sources, and but she's very well, much well-known for stealing things and stealing people, cooking people as well, and eating her victims, usually, which are children. And it kind of goes alongside the Hansel and Gretel witch version, because in certain reinterpretations of Hansel and Gretel, you know, instead of a witch, she is the Baba Yaga. I think the earliest mention of her was in 1755, and it was talked about in a book about Russian grammar. called It was called Russian grammar. But anyway, it sort of had discourse about Slavic folk figures. But yeah, she turns up a lot in books of Russian fairy tales and folklore. And she's seen or she has this duality of being both in certain versions, a goddess of spring and nature, but also associated with woods, forests, and on the other hand, death, winter, storms, and being kind of underworldly. And that th- th- those are just kind of links that have her. But she is meant to be a kind of ghastly figure with exaggerated features, her nose being so big, it has grown into the ceiling and is hideous. She's insanely tall. She has drooping breasts. She has iron or steel teeth and a very bony physique. She sometimes has a leg made of clay or iron, gold, or steel. And these imaginings are really just based on the Slavic interpretations that they drew of the Baba Yaga, which were very exaggerated. So she has so she has exaggerated features and and they were based on Slavic folklore and how they drew her. But basically she thrives on Russian blood and is cannibalistic. She eats children and young women sometimes will threaten men. She kidnaps, uh, murders at will, has different kinds of guises. She's a trickster, chaotic, can be helpful and generous with advice, but her help is not cheap. Mm-hmm. And she, her fun facts that I loved about her is she has this, I guess, <laughs> she she likes to lay on the stove a lot. And we made this funny image on our podcast where it was like, paint me one of your French girls laying there on the stove, <laughs> which was great. She also supposedly rakes coals using her nose because her nose is so long that she can just do that and licks up soot with her tongue Hmm. so yeah she may or may not have sisters and she travels usually in a in a mortar and pestle sitting in the mortar and using the pestle to kind of maneuver herself forward which is kind of fun lives in a, a very typical house from that region which is has chicken feet but we found out that that's a very typical style housing for 
certain regions in Nordic and Russian folklore. So their houses on basically wood, on bits of wood. And because of the way the, the trees and the wood having the roots of the tree spread in the mm. bottom, they kind of look like chicken feet because the houses are okay. built on like bits of, yeah, on, on trees, which have so, roots. So metaphorical chicken legs. Yeah, so so when you look at it. Yeah. legs are <laughs> the style. Yeah, so in, in the, uh, I think, in the tradition and in the stories, it has actual chicken legs and it can run around and you have to basically, you have to say this phrase at the house in order to get it to stop and in order mm-hmm. to get into the house. But in actual, in actual, in actuality, like what we think where it might have come from is that these actual buildings that were built on top of trees with their roots on the ground and when you look kind of further away from them, they kind of look like there's like feet at the bottom because the roots of the tree spread in different directions. So I think that was kind of cool. Yeah, I think that's pretty much what I have on folklore. <laughs> so what's she like in D&D? In D&D, I'll try to do a TLDR. So she's basically, I would say, a carbon copy of the folklore version of Baba Yaga, except without the nature deity kind of implications. So she doesn't really have any ties to nature. She still has her dancing hut, which is really a character all of its own. Mm. In D&D, has its own stats, its legs to kick people. It's high-key hilarious. Her house exists, depending on the version, because she's been around in D&D since OD&D, like the original Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, wow. She was, her dancing hut was one of the, it was in this, I think, little compendium of magic items, very what, what, iconic magic items, basically. Baba Yaga's hut was on there along with Excalibur, all of the big fantasy magic items throughout fantasy and folklore stories. And she kind of developed later on. She appears in mostly adventures. I don't think she's ever appeared in a, an official book, from what I understand, unless it was an adventure specifically about her own hut, Baba Yaga's dancing hut or the dancing hut of Baba Yaga. And she is evil. She Her alignment is always evil. But that always kind of confused me because she never really does anything in D&D that I would classify as evil other than being a character. <laughs> she eats people. Yeah, that's Pretty basically it, it. Just casually eats people. Has a fence made out of their bones. No big deal. Um, that's like yeah, just casual cannibalism. But mostly, she is a uh, an overarching antagonist, but more of like an antagonistic force. So if people do an adventure in Baba Yaga's hut, which is usually where you encounter her, she's more of a presence. Her magic is felt everywhere, and if you do encounter her, it says basically every in every edition of this adventure where you go into her hut. And D and D, it says you should caution your players not to kill her because she will kill them. Nobody's going to walk away from this. She is an ancient figure. She will murder all of you. And so the players are instead like the DM is given instructions to literally make sure the players know that and to guide the players into making a deal with her, bargaining with her. She has this wealth of secrets of the land. She said to know everything. And she, for a price, 
like the folklore, will tell you anything you want to know, but you got to do something for her. You also cannot insult her. You have to be very polite. If you insult her, then you will she will turn into a very present antagonist and either kick her out, kick you out of her house or kill you. So I would see she's almost on par with a deity in D&D. She is, her powers are said to be on par with minor gods, but she doesn't have that title. She's, I think, just classified as a monstrous being until fourth edition when she becomes an archfey, which is how the, the warlock patron kind of thing comes around. She can also be a warlock patron. And as for her role in like the Forgotten Realms or like other campaign settings in D&D, it's very murky. I think it's left open-ended for DMs to figure out her origin story themselves and fit her wherever they want to fit her. Because as the Baba Yaga is an iconic character from folklore, tying her intrinsically into the lore is a monumentous task, I'm sure. So they kind of, they don't, they just say how powerful she is. They say where she's located. They classify, they give her stats. They give her classification in what kind of quote unquote monster she is. They give her an alignment, a description. But as for How was Baba Yaga born? Not really much else. The only thing that I can definitively say that is very, this is Baba Yaga in D&D, is she is the adoptive mother of Igwilf and also known as Tasha, who, if you are familiar with D&D lore, a very powerful, I would say, demonologist slash wizard. She wrote Igwilf's uh, Igwilf's Demonomicon, the Demonomicon of Igwilf, which is a huge magic item in Mm D&D. And she has her own lore and story, but she, later on in D&D lore, Baba Yaga is her adoptive mother. And that's really the only canonical, like, this is how we fit Baba Yaga into our canon lore, is we Mm. make her the mother of one of our original characters, basically. Other than that, she is overarchingly just powerful force don't fuck with her and really that's that's all there is to it we we didn't find a whole lot of that was bad with baba yaga when we looked into her it was mostly just yeah baba yaga as a figure is pretty ageist and some of the depictions of her have over exaggerated features that could be read in very problematic ways but as for how she's utilized in D, she could have been done a lot worse i think was our conclusion yeah <laughs> and we actually love how she is we love that she's this all-known knowing presence who doesn't take crap from anybody and is the mother of one of the most iconic witch characters in D&D. It's interesting that you say a lot of what you've said will actually carry into this, but the big difference where you say in D&D, it's well, nobody really knows exactly what her backstory is. Not so in Pathfinder. Pathfinder decided they were going to figure this out. They do give Baba Yaga her origin is Earth. She is from Russia, and they assign her to a a group of tribal people known as the Sarmatians. I would say the lawful neutral version of a hag on some level. They live in groups of three. They're very powerful seers of the future, and they have origins in folklore as well. But Baba Yaga, she's a busy, busy bitch. So uh, one thing that I, while I was skimming actual Baba Yaga's lore, is she has a lot of origins in folk myth, but also political commentary, specifically with regard to Peter and Peter the Great and Catherine. Catherine was depicted as a Baba Yaga-esque figure because she was very unpopular because she was a powerful woman. (laughs) That's another interesting connection that I made to Pathfinder Baba Yaga. I'm sorry, this is meandering because there is a lot of information here. 
She gets trained by this Norn, becomes a very powerful witch, and eventually creates the dancing hut. She does have her dancing hut and uses the hut to travel between planes. So she uses that first to go to the first world and creates a realm for herself there and then gets bored with that. And, and then so, so she ends up on Galarian, creates a demon lord out of this guy named Koschichi who is an asshole who basically offended her. Yeah, screw Coast Chi-Chi. He's also an asshole in D&D. Oh, you just activated my fight or flight. <laughs> He's the notable demon that I was talking about in my... The big thing that I would say she's known for is conquering a country called Irisen. Which is it? Which is uh, near? It's up in the up in the north, and she conquers this land, takes it away from the Alfin people who ruled it, and Alfins are kind of Galarians, Vikings, and installs her daughters as the rulers of this kingdom called Irisen. And so, for about a thousand years, give or take, thousand. 1500 years she basically instituted this cycle where she would put one of her daughters on the throne of Irisen for about a hundred years and then come back and take the daughter away and then put then a new daughter gets put in the in in her place it's it's the daughter of the previous daughter right it's a cycle and this went on this this went on for a a very long time until they there and then there was some there was a rebellion that happened didn't go great Mm -hmm. but didn't go great for Earson. and and this I, this is also a spoiler but i i feel like it's 1e so uh, what in, what ends up happening there is a ap called reign of winter which i have played it's super fun and it has to do with the these w- winter witches that rule Irisen and baba yaga you actually end up helping baba yaga because she got captured by one of her daughters at one of her daughters teams up with a guy who is baba yaga's i i get it confused i'm pretty sure it's her son actually oh. rasputin is her son so you fight rasputin you oh. fight queen elvana who is the daughter who teamed up with Rasputin. <laughs> and if you play your cards That's incredible. Right, you do go to Russia and you get shot at you get shot at with guns. You go to lots of other places too, but you go to Russia and if you play you do your travel cards to right, real world Russia. Which this is I love this. Wow. You can put Anastasia on the crown on the throne of ears. What a trip. To, to get back to Baba Yaga, I thought the I, the fact that she's involved in political commentary in Russia and in Eastern Europe is really interesting because Baba Yaga is extremely involved in the the political landscape of certain parts of Galarian and in, in Irisen. She the directly affected the development of that region and she's also friends with jatembe who's this also crazy powerful wizard they meet up and have coffee she's really really essential to a pretty decent chunk of galarian society and i think that's the part of her that is the coolest to me if she's evil she definitely looks like baba yaga the stereotypical witch hag woman insanely powerful one of the most powerful statted out creatures in pathfinder but she's 
ultimately very much a person with interests and intrigues that are that go way beyond I like eating children, like way beyond. So it's so ironic. We were just talking about hags and how how simplistic they are in terms of their depiction. And then you've got Baba Yaga who like she's literally called the queen of witches and is 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 a hag on some level and yet she is one of in Pathfinder like an extremely complicated and nuanced individual. Yep. And some of my favorite bits about her are about her disposition. There's there's some quotes. She's more powerful than most dukes of hell. Considers the rune lords to be bickering children. And if you've <laughs> played Pathfinder and you know who the rune lords are, they are the very first big badass people that you meet. And the fact that she looks down at them so much is incredible to me. She isn't a goddess only because the idea of answering prayers appalls her, which is also part of her lore, which is that anytime someone came to her with a request, she would make them do something equal or almost worse in order to fix that request. And seeing people keep on doing those things just frustrated her a lot. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite bits was that she thinks that the necromancer Tar Buffon, who in Pathfinder lore is the biggest of big bads, is immature and chasing <laughs> a dream. <laughs> On par for Baba Yaga, I would say. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, I love that bit yeah. about her her lore. And one of the things that Vic left out was that she conquered the Lenorm Kings in 23 days, which is a big part of their lasting shame with this separation of losing the land of Irisin was just that she handed that defeat to them and they have never forgotten it. I love that for her. Yes. Feminist icon. <laughs> she is she really is yeah i think we named her that she's on par with loth for us yeah society looks down on this maybe the lore is a little bit iffy at least in dungeons and dragons terms with how we've researched it and even the way these characters are portrayed in their own folklores and stuff there's always something to be said about evil women and how their evil is tied to their womanhood and then seeing those women as feminist <laughs> icons because they're not a afraid of what makes them who they are, whether it is tied to their gender or sex, whether it's just a part of them, like they are unabashedly who they are without apology. And really, that's who everybody aspires to be, right? That's such a feminist equality concept. Be who you are. Be in your villain era. Take over a whole town. <laughs> exactly. Burn it down. You know, like we love that. She's just one example, I think, of how Pathfinder has really diverted itself away from or from D&D lore. And even though there wasn't anything terribly bad about D&D lore for the Baba Yaga, the fact that they took this character and made her such a intrinsic part of yeah. Pathfinder lore and gave her a personality and mm -hmm. and identifying traits, not just just another big bag, but a complicated character is is one of the things that I am I would hope to bring to show to D&D &D players about Pathfinder is how they have made very 
intentional changes to some bits of lore that D&D mm-hmm. people might be familiar with to try to create, I think, a, a better or at least a very good result. Yeah, and I think that D&D is getting a little bit better with it, but definitely not with legacy characters from folklore. They definitely haven't done it with Baba Yaga. But when we looked into Igwilv, who and slash Tasha, they that's an original character that has been around in D&D for about as long as Baba Yaga has been. And her character has evolved so much through D&D and she has gotten so complicated and they've really started leaning into that. But she is definitely an outlier. D&D doesn't complicate most of their villains, but they are starting to, which is nice. (laughs) But because they have this whole backlog of established lore, I can, it's not an excuse, but I can still sympathize with, oh, you have 50 years of established lore that you need to backtrack, that you need to fix, that you need to untangle and maybe start fresh or make things canon. It's a big undertaking, but it doesn't excuse not making complicated monsters, complicated women, complicated villains, complicated alignments. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely something to be said about that, right? When you're at the top, when you've you're the you're the people who kind of laid the foundation, yes. right? Yeah. On some level yeah. of this particular, especially of this particular kind of TTRPG. I won't say TTRPGs across the board because that's not fair, but that Pathfinder is lucky in that they started later and they're getting to divest themselves from kind of the standard. Mm-hmm. But D and D, how do you divest yourself? from the standard that you created on some level when you that's, are that's, the standard yeah yeah right. That's a tricky question. Where do you go when you're at the top? Mm-hmm. That's a that's a tricky question. I mean, one they need to answer yeah. soon. I think preferably yesterday, like, <laughs> like yesterday or five five to ten years ago. Maybe, yeah, but like, it, it, it is tricky. It's it's hard. I think that's good. Is you can also learn from mistakes. Is when you watch what they do. And you just own up to mistakes and also learn from them is is a very important thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that brings us to the conclusion of the episode. We were hoping we'd have enough time to talk about Banshees, but we are reaching the end of all of our available time. One thing that I'll <laughs> mention about Banshees that I thought was really interesting that I didn't even know about until these notes started coming up is these are almost exclusively elves in, yep. in, in Pathfinder. I, I don't think that's the case in d Well, yeah, it, it technically, yes, it is, unfortunately. So oh. I will say that Banshee is starting from their first appearance I believe in AD&D, where almost exclusively, I think in AD&D it was Elven and Human Maidens, and then they went to exclusively Elven Maidens by second edition. Fourth edition, they could be any race, and then fifth edition went back to Elven Maidens, which I was very upset about, because I'm just, fourth edition had it. Just make them, you don't have to be Elven Maidens, they can be anything. I love elves. I'm an elf apologist, unabashedly, Mm -hmm. but even I was just like, listen, they don't got, why elves? You didn't, even 
even intrinsically tie it to elven lore or anything. You're just like, oh, it's just sad elves and elves that have died tragically. I'm like, yeah, but why? Because there's something with their soul. What is it? And they never, they never true D&D fashion. They never actually explain it. They just kind of put a couple of phrases on there and hope that you forgive them. So unfortunately, <laughs> that may also be lifted from D&D. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've got thoughts about that. But yeah, the, the 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 main thing that I found interesting that I think it was Pete who added it to our notes was that one of the new the two E the newer two EAPs, Blood Lords, which is very heavily undead themed, it's set in a kingdom largely populated by undead, is that you can choose to be a banshee. Yeah. Obviously we're we're running out of time, but like eh, the idea that you can cho- choose to be a banshee almost makes sense to me when you consider the the rest of the lore, right? Yeah. They're 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 a warning. They're a harbinger of doom. Or in the yeah. original folklore, they're a protector. They're you know? a protector. Like, Celtic mm-hmm. mythology. Yeah. Be careful. Watch out. They why wouldn't somebody? Yeah. Why wouldn't somebody want to warn someone else of this fate that they met? And why wouldn't they want to try and help preserve, you know, future people who could be victimized by whatever happened to them? I think that's, I mean, to me, that's kind of the key, right? That's the crux of it. Yeah. Banshees have been done dirty by most games. We can't even say it's exclusively TRPGs. It's games and gamifying banshees. Mm -hmm. Seeing banshees in fantasy stories and ghost stories, they have been woefully misinterpreted for a very long time. When we looked into it, that was the biggest thing was banshees are a warning. Banshees do not kill anybody. Their wails are annoying and loud, but they don't kill people. They die a tragic death and they're tied to specific Irish family names and they protect those families for eternity so they don't die. And that's a beautiful story. And yet in all of in TTRPGs, in video games, in novels, in whatever, they they're just shrieking women and they are so watered down and the meaning is completely lost. It's such a yeah. I could go on and on obviously we're out of time but it's a tragedy and it it sucks yeah. that like most places that's what no that's how banshees are known it's unfortunate the the book of the dead is a recent book that really expanded on the role of undead in galarian really establishing that while undead are typically bad guys that you wipe out as player characters that there are entire nations of undead that have formed complex societies and while they're not mentioned in the book of the dead there is a brief little snippet from the impossible lands that says that's talking about the land of mechatar says it isn't uncommon in mechatar to find race conducting theater zombie lords perfecting their mastery of the loot and banshees using their voice to elevate arias to new heights so i think it would be cool especially with the remaster to dig into that stuff we were talking about that they are not bad guys really when you Mm -hmm. think about it or at least you know their true lore and expand on them being just as much conscientious undead as some other undead have proven to be. But they're individuals. Reaching, yes, they're individuals. Nuance. So re- nuance, <laughs> nuance, nuance. <laughs> the first and last thing, if you want to, if you learn anything from this, learn about nuance. Nuance. So it's no secret that one of my big goals as a Pathfinder, I hate to use the word influencer, but someone who talks about Pathfinder all the time, I've tried to bring d people into the Pathfinder Pathfinder Fold with events like Beginner Box Days and had another episode going over the differences between Pathfinder and d 
D&D mechanic-wise. So it's no secret that part of bringing you on to here is, as D&D content creators, I want to get your take on the differences that you've seen from these couple of subjects that we've talked about from D&D and Pathfinder and get your overall impression. I, I hope I get to run a game for you all one day so you get to experience the mechanical awesomeness of Pathfinder. But what are your overall impressions of Pathfinder just from your look into these couple of topics? I think I can start. I think that Pathfinder has a lot of interesting lore that is has improved upon D&D and they've even added lore to some something that D&D necessarily didn't even have the lore in which is very interesting cuz we on the Slumly Trolls and Shardy specifically is a whore for lore but I appreciate <laughs> it as well and I love the fact that they just add on to it and they take it somewhere and it's not I mean there is something to be said about okay you give the basics and then let the dungeon master or the game master interpret it however and then build a story around that there is something to be said about keeping it simple and and not having that much background because it's it's easier to digest that instead of having to read seven different books and understand what's going on and then build on that but i do love the fact that they do give lore they have really they have a story they have something that's bigger than just the monster so mm -hmm. to speak and i mean yeah it, it does improve on some of the lore it's and it's been really interesting to figure and hear about all the different things that you've been talking about the stories about pathfinder and just to see a reinterpretation of it because what we've been getting is just like the D, &D interpretation of it mm -hmm. and i mean we do have our own games and then our our dms and gms are interpreting the dn D, &D version but to like hear the official Paizo version interpretation of it. And then it would be really awesome if we could play the game, the Pathfinder game, and then get the interpretation of the GM in Pathfinder, you know, interpreting that lore and building on that and seeing where that could go. So I, I think it's just really interesting. Building on that, I also, some of this stuff is just so fresh because we've been obviously deep diving into D&D for over two years now. So looking into any system other than D&D is always just a breath of fresh air. Um, just <laughs> Absolutely. How, how other, especially because these are all hags, the Baba Yaga, Drow. Well, hags and Baba Yaga are from like actual folklore and then Drow, obviously they were inspired by Scandinavian mythology and then in D&D and then to Pathfinder. It's just, it's interesting to see how the interpretations go, Lisa was saying, and how differently they tackle them and how much flavor they bring to them as yeah. well. You can definitely tell that Paizo and is, their roots are in D&D. &D. There's, there's literally no way to get around that. <laughs> their origin story, Paizo and Wizards, the people who originally worked on Pathfinder 1E, D&D &D is in its bones. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that can be a blessing Thing, as well as a curse because it yeah. suffers from a lot of the same pitfalls as D&D &D because D&D &D took a lot of inspiration from real world mythology and real world problems and was created by a bunch of straight white guys during a time when while change was happening it wasn't as normalized as it is now like women at tables minorities at tables etc so because it kind of evolved from that same root you're going to find a lot of the same problems but they all have the same 
root cause, which is unfortunate. It's not D&D's fault. It's not Pathfinder's fault. It's the the big bad evil guy is society. It's the patriarchy. It's capitalism. It's all these big things that are going on around us. And really like studying D&D and Pathfinder is just such an interesting case study on culture and how it's changed. And like being on Twitter or social media and seeing people react so negatively, the Hadozi incident for starters, like with D&D, people didn't give, well, they they did give a shit when Hadozi were first introduced in the original D&D Spelljammer, which if, for those who don't know, very racist race and Spelljammer, but they didn't have a voice because they weren't invited to the tables where people were playing those. But now they have a seat, they're making their voices heard, and that's beautiful. And seeing while Paizo has some of that same root issues of straight white cis men inventing this game around a table to play with your friends, they, like was mentioned earlier, have the benefit of starting a little bit later in the game and inviting more people to the table, learning from the past mistakes and having the opportunity to start anew. Whereas D&D, it's a much more murky issue because they've been around since the 70s and completely getting rid of the lore and the rhetoric and the imagery that goes along with that is a huge task that is maybe too huge. Who knows? But I have always been very, I've always known of Pathfinder, but finally getting to look at it and seeing what they're doing. I have hope that they will follow through, especially as you said, they were, they're going to be relooking at this. They're redoing the lore. They're redoing, they're taking a good hard look at stuff. And I, I feel hopeful, but I'm also skeptical because it has that same grassroots, icky, bicky, patriarchal stuff that's never quite going to go away, unfortunately, mm-hmm. in any TTRPG. It's not even just Pathfinder. Any TTRPG no, is influenced yeah. by d unfortunately, is going to have some of that. I just hope that they, I think they are aware of it, and I hope that their awareness of it will continue to be positive for the entire for Pathfinder and for the entire tabletop community as a yeah. whole. If we have a saying on our on the Slumly Trolls podcast that it's not just a D&D problem, it's a real world problem and I think that can go along with this. It's not just the Pathfinder problem, it's a real world problem. Like real world issues making their way into TTRPGs and that's a BBG is when you don't catch on to that and you just need to have I think a, a diverse group of people to take a real hard look at what it is that you're putting into the TTRPGs. Take a look at it from all angles, all perspectives. The more diverse, the better. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree with everything you two said. Coming at it from a Pathfinder perspective, it is no secret, if anybody who knows me, that I am I am very biased for Pathfinder, both in my experience and just in my preference. And, but I will say this for D&D, and I appreciate the, the expression of hope for Pathfinder. I have a similar expression of hope for D&D and that their methods, while they are different than Pathfinder, their design philosophy is different. The thing that I think makes D&D strong, and a lot of people would argue this is what makes it weak, but I disagree on some level. There's so much room for interpretation in D&D. There's so much room to make the game your own. And some people use that for bad, but more and more people are using it for good. And 
And I think it's that impulse for the people who still play it, who love it as much as I love Pathfinder. That is going to be what changes D&D is more and more people making Dungeons and Dragons, making it their own, being these things that are hurtful and harmful and saying, that's not my D&D and I'm not going to, I'm not going to make that happen. I'm going to change it and I'm going to be vocal about it and I'm going to talk about it. That is what's going to take D&D, take it, continue to take it upward, right? Continue to move it forward. Mm -hmm. I think that is strength is the the way that it's been reclaimed by its own fans, I guess. This is our son now. You can't have it anymore. Exactly. (laughs) You get away from our boy, okay? (laughs) We can fix him. (laughs) Listen, Sade, I hope that this is not the end to your Pathfinder journey. I know that while we talked about subjects that you've already covered, I think that there's a lot about Pathfinder that you will continue to like uh, lore or mechanic-wise, especially if I get to run a game for you. I I think you'll have a lot of fun with the mechanics, but I I personally couldn't wait for you to discover things Gesna, the deity, Phrasma, the Knights of Last Wall, or even just so much of the other lore to D&D that may not be specifically related to TTRPGs and feminism, but Pathfinder, I think, has taken a lot of strides towards representation in so many different aspects, with the Mwangi Expanse book being written entirely by Black authors, people of color and the new Tianja book, which is Pathfinder's version of Asia, also being written by AAPI. Uh, AAPI, yeah. AAPI authors. I think I think you guys would have a lot of fun with it. So I hope that this isn't the end for you or for you, listener. But we have reached the end of our time. So briefly, where can people find more slovenly trolls or more of each of you individually? Oh man. Well, we you can find the Slovenly Trolls podcast where we basically have discussions this only just with B and Lissa shouting at each other about D&D lore and contextualizing it and the history behind it. The Slavily Trolls podcast is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And then we are both on social media. I run the Slovenly Trolls Twitter account at Slovenly Trolls. We recently got back into TikTok, which is also at Slovenly Trolls. Will we post there often? I don't know. I'm just vibing there currently. And uh, Lissa runs the Slovenly Trolls Instagram at Slovenly Trolls. And she could plug her own personal stuff. I have a Twitter account where I support our podcast. Just that's the purpose <laughs> of that Twitter account. You don't need to follow me, but if you follow the Slovenly Trolls, you'll find me there anyway. Uh, <laughs> and the Instagram. We also have another podcast that I did not plug called Cave Trolls, which we run with our friend Terry. And the vibe of that is he read or we read the news of TTRPGs and new TTRPGs and everything happening in the TTRPG space. And he will pitch them to both Chardet and I and ask if we want to play that TTRPG. And then we give an answer. And that's the entire plot of... (laughs) Also, the occasional what's going on in the Twitterverse or the latest TTRPG discourse we sometimes talk about. It's more like chatty, laid back kind of vibes. Not so much, let's have an identity crisis and talk about how much we hate the patriarchy, which also weirdly (laughs) also ends up happening, but not as often and with less tears. (laughs) 
And Vic, where can people find more of you? So my personal Twitter, where I tend to talk about my life, but also Pathfinder. You can find me at Tentacruel on Twitter. You can also find Gloria of New Thassalon, the character through which I explain lore at gbrainar, B-R-A-E-N-A-R. That's where I do a lot of my lore dumps. It's currently on hiatus because I broke my hand, but I'll be back and there's plenty of backlog. You can also find my podcast at Visit, it's called Visit Galarian, and that's pretty much anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. It's just gotten started, and again, it's on hiatus. Perfect. Well, ladies, thank you very much for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation to listen to and get to participate in. Learned a lot about D&D, folklore, and Pathfinder. And listener, if you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, I hope that you will go follow these podcasts as well as go to Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Give this own podcast rating. Uh, and you can find me, of course, at RuleLord2E everywhere. Hopefully not on Twitter for too much longer once something else actually lands. But we'll see where that ends up going. Keeping my fingers crossed for Blue Sky. But anyway, listener, until next session, don't let the rules rule you. And don't be a dick. Don't be a dick. <laughs> Woo! <laughs>